Turning, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, back to the text that was read for us as Garrett was giving his devotional. I thought there, there was one little girl here who started on the floor and then got up on stage and went from stage actually to pulpit, and I thought, she's going to preach this morning. Uh, she, she knows what she's doing, and, and I would be more than willing to allow her. I was really interested in seeing exactly what she had to say. Last week we looked at a really simple question. And my goal last week was just to stir up that which we already know. Nothing was said last week that we are not already familiar with. This is a church that has been marked as a church that is a go church. When we look up on the four words that are behind us, that last one is go and serve. We recognize that this has never been a setting where our desire has been merely a, a Christian country club. Our desire, though, is to enhance and to reboot and to reignite and to reaffirm that which we already know. Thus, the question last week was simply this, what is God doing in the world today? To put it in simple terms, as we looked at last week, what channel is God watching? Is he watching the sports? Is he watching the economy channel? Is he watching the history channel? The answer we came to is that God is watching the church planting channel. What God is doing is he is involved in local churches. God is preparing his bride. He's redeeming a body called the church. Why? For the praise of his glorious grace. To the end that he might manifest wisdom to all the heavenly and all the earthly powers. So that every single Sunday as we gather together as a local church... There are powers and principalities that are looking down and they're absolutely amazed at the wisdom of God that he would bring together you with that individual over there and that he would form a family and that he would form a body and that he would prepare a bride for the express purpose of enjoying fellowship with him forever. That is the most exciting adventure that God is involved in today. What makes that work so special? Well, number one is because we have a great enemy. The gates of hell are seeking to hold back the advance of the church. And yet we have the promise of God that the gates of hell, death itself, will not be able to withstand the advance of the church. We also have great companionship. Christ himself promises to be with us. So he is not only doing the work from on high, but we're told in Matthew chapter 28 that lo, he is with us always. So as the church is expanding, he is partnering with us or we are partnering with him. It's great companionship. Then finally, because we have absolutely guaranteed success, the church will be built the course of my world, and even as Pastor Sam mentioned, because of our proximity, we are located close to a Christian college, and I have the privilege of working there. And uh, through the course of the last couple of weeks, that Christian university has raised a, a, a great deal of energy as it's given consideration toward the future. Let me just simply say this. I love Christian education. And I love the impact that that university has had on my past, and I am extremely excited about it as far as what God has as far as the future is concerned. With that said, 
what God is doing at Palmetto Baptist Church this morning is more important than what's happening in a Christian university or what's happening in any other parachurch organization. Because what God has promised to do is to build his church. And in so saying that, my goal is not to diminish or to minimize Christian education, but really to maximize what God has promised the church. Above all else, we must be churchmen. We must be individuals that are committed to what God is doing. We are to love his bride, and we are to prioritize his engagement with with our engagement with his family. This is what God has promised will always continue. Schools and other parachurch organizations, well, through church history, they rise, and at times they fall. But the church will not fall. As a result of that, because of God's promises, we at Palmetto should be four things. And we concluded last week with these four realities. Number one, we must be an expanding church. We must be reaching our community. In the future, we've already heard a little bit about the the building that is to come so that we can move from this facility to something that is more permanent. And as we make that move, the purpose of that building is not merely a preaching palace. It's not merely a social club. The purpose of that building is that it be a hospital for the, for the hurting. And thus, we prioritize it with our time. We prioritize it with our giving so that we can be a church that is never content with who we are. We're always expanding into our community. We recognize that the need of the gospel is great, and it should be our first priority. We should be a reproducing church. We should be multiplying ourselves through the context of our community. We should be a supporting church. We should be seeking gospel partners that are serving throughout the world. That means that we pray for them. We give to them. We communicate with them. That gospel partners are indeed in partnership, in fellowship with us. It's not merely that we give and we send a check, but we need to stay engaged with what God is doing in their lives throughout the world. Then finally, we're to be ascending church. As God would lead the church and as would lead individuals, we send them out to gospel-needy places. Right now, I mentioned this last week, there are 2.1 billion people in the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2.1 billion. That represents over 6,500 distinct people groups people that have distinct languages, distinct cultures, that, again, have no access to the gospel. When we look at the privileges that God has given us, and we do not apologize for those privileges, but we live in a gospel-saturated culture. And as we compare what God has privileged us with, with the needs of the world, we can't help but be motivated to thrust individuals out and to pray that God would take our best and to send them out. Even this week, Ashlyn Hunt, as we commissioned her last Sunday, arrived in Zambia and is beginning her 14 weeks, or I'm sorry, 14 months of service on the field in Zambia. And that should bring us absolutely great joy. And one of the immediate questions that should be formed within our own heart is simply, who's next? Just, who's next? 
Our goal this morning is not to necessarily look at the question of sending individuals out, but it's really to look at the first result of God building his church, and that is building his church internally. What should Palmetto look like as an expanding church? What are our responsibilities as it relates to going? Even as I I looked out this morning as we were singing, uh, there is a guest with us here this morning, and seeing his presence prompted a, a, a story within my own mind. I'll mention his story in just a moment, but allow me to, to, to share mine, and then we'll compare it with his. A few years ago, I was actually on a plane, and I was heading from Detroit, Michigan to New York City. My purpose in actually making that trip was I had a youth pastor that was with me, and we were going to the New York Gospel Mission with the express purpose of, and I was going to share with this youth, youth pastor how to do a short-term mission trip to New York City. I'd done several before, and I thought, and he asked me if I could kind of walk him through the paces as it relates to that. So as I was getting on the plane, because I genuinely work in Christian organizations, at times I have limited access to unbelievers. So I'm always thinking in terms of every plane ride is an opportunity to share the gospel. I began praying in advance, Lord, whoever sits beside me, prepare their heart, prepare my heart so that I might be able to share the gospel with them. I got on the plane first, and as as I was was sitting there, I do what everyone does when they're sitting on a plane. I was watching the people coming down the aisle. As I'm watching the individuals come down the aisle, I was thinking to myself, all right, now, who is the individual that God providentially has beside me? I was at the window seat. There were two seats beside me. I, I thought, okay, I've got a shot for two on this particular flight. This is good. And as they were walking in, I, I, I looked at one, and I went, oh, you can pass on by, and then another, uh, no, you could sit, and then another. Uh, you. And then a couple walked onto the plane. And I actually seen them in the lobby area. And they were loud. Middle-aged couple, and they were chatting back and forth with one another. And, and already, before we ever got on the plane, there was a little bit in which they were just irritant to those that were sitting around them. And as they got on the plane, I thought to myself, you could walk on by. And they didn't. She sat beside me, and then her husband sat on the aisle seat. And I began to engage them in conversation. And as I was engaging them in conversation, they were sharing with me what they were doing. They were actually going to New York City, and their purpose of going was to spend a weekend of partying. And they had shared with me, they'd just come from Utah where they, they, they'd done a ski retreat. Uh, he had his own plane. He had his own boat. They were sharing with me the wealth that, that they'd been blessed with. And their whole purpose of going was to party and to get drunk and to engage with various family members that had the exact same mindset. And as they were telling their story, they were arguing with one another about the details, and they were getting louder and louder and louder. And generally speaking, on a plane, there's a common courtesy that everyone's kind of quiet, and you're courteous to those that are around you. But these two had no mindset for being courteous at all. And immediately, a battle began to take place within my own soul. And the battle was simply this. Now, I prayed, Lord, these are the individuals that I'm to share the gospel with. But the louder that they're talking, the more internally I thought, Lord, no. Just no. 
Eventually, they shut the doors of the plane, and we began that takeoff, and these two continued to talk. And I thought within my heart, all right, I, I, I've got to broach the topic. I've got to get there. And they kept going in directions that were antithetical to the gospel. And as I fought that battle internally, there was a moment of silence where they were silent and where I was silent. And I thought, I have to make a choice. And this is what I knew. I knew that if I opened my mouth and I began to share the gospel with them, that they would not be courteous listeners. You know, there are some individuals that you share the gospel with and they smile and they say, well, thank you very much for sharing that, but I'm not interested. That's not these two. These two would begin to, 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 to bicker with me. These two would begin to demean me. These two would begin to tell me what they believe, and they would do so in a way that would disturb everyone else on the plane. So I finally came to a decision, and the decision was simply this. I reached down, I grabbed my headphones, and I put my headphones on. God lost, I won. And as I, with headphones on, listened to Christian music, seeking to drown out the noise within my own conscience, where the Holy Spirit was consistently communicating to me, you're a coward. And I thought, yep, I am. Now, interestingly enough, I got off the plane in New York City, I immediately went to the New York Gospel Mission with this young youth pastor. I walked in the door. The leader of the Gospel Mission said, hey, can you preach the gospel? We have about 125 guys in the chapel right now. I went, sure, absolutely. Grabbed my Bible, went into the arena where I felt safe. Behind the pulpit in a chapel with 125 homeless people in front of me, and without hesitation, I preached the gospel to them because that was safe for me. But that night, as I lay on the pillow, as I lay on my bed, I thought to myself, Brian, this can never happen again. How can an individual who's a minister of the gospel cower in fear in that situation. And that restless night actually sent me to this text and a number of other texts where I sought to instill within my character the courage to speak the gospel. Now, that's my story. Let me just ever so quickly share a, another story. It's an individual who's sitting with us, who's a guest with us today, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but he knows it's coming at this point in time. And his name is Dr. Marcelo Farrow, and he's sitting there. Dr. Farrow has heard me share that story before, and I've heard him share his story before. Dr. Farrow is a well-known surgeon, and as he boarded a plane in a state of utter disbelief and no interest in the gospel whatsoever. An older woman sat down beside him, eyed him up, and without hesitation began to share the gospel with him. And the Spirit of God did a work within his life, and he accepted Christ. 
And from him his, his accepting Christ, he then had the opportunity to lead his family to the Lord. His son is a member at Palmetto Baptist Church. And the Lord has used him in his home country of Argentina to actually lead multiple individuals to the Lord. Because one old woman had no fear of a well-known, well-dressed Argentine doctor because she knew that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. So the question is this. How can we be less like me and more like her? That's really what it boils down to. How can we be bold gospel witnesses in the community that God has surrounded us in? And I think this passage actually drives us to this issue. When I speak of myself, and I would dare say, I would suggest that when I speak of you, many of us don't have a tendency necessarily to be what I'll, def- I'll define as open deniers of the gospel. Most of us wouldn't do that. What we typically do is more what Peter did as he sat bef- beside the fire, where he w- there was a quiet passivity. Our denial is not an open denial. It is a silent denial and a quiet passivity that ultimately reflects selfish sin. I know, because I know from a personal perspective, that the sin of fear is rooted in the fertile soil of pride. It is pride that makes me seek the approval of men. It is pride that at times causes my tongue to swell up and my mouth to get stiff. Now, some of you, by God's grace, are just the opposite of me, and some of you are lion-hearted as it relates to to proclamation. Some of you, perhaps, are even too lion-hearted, and you enjoy the, 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 the opportunity for confrontation. And you do so within your own strength and with your own message. Thus, pride really produces another vile fruit, and that is that of self-dependence. But this morning, our challenge is simply this. We want to address the lack of courage when it comes to speaking the truth. Perhaps I can put it negatively, and then I'll put it positively. Negatively, we do not want to be paralyzed by fear as it relates to the proclamation of truth. Positively, It is our desire that God would use his word to inspire within us the courage to proclaim truth truth from the housetops. Let's go back and look at our passage for a moment here. It's already been read for, for us. Let me give you a sense of context. What Christ is doing in this particular context is he's calling his disciples aside, and this is the first time that he is sending them out on their own to proclaim the gospel, to preach the news of the kingdom. And what he's giving them is a number of mandates and a number of instructions. And I would dare say that as he's giving these instructions, he's looking into the eyes of these young men And he's recognizing that within their eyes, there is a fear that is building up. So as he gets to the end of his instructions, he begins simply by saying this. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. From verse 26 down to verse 31, you're going to see (coughs) the same command that is given three different times. Verse 26, 
So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them shall fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. This entire passage is actually built around those three identical commands. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, do not fear. So the the point of the instruction is extremely clear. That is simply that as disciples, we should not fear, but we should have courage. The question is simply this, courage to do what? Well, again, the text actually gives us instructions as to exactly what that is. He simply says this in verse 26. For what I tell you, In the dark, say in the light, in what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So here's the point of the passage. Do not be afraid to speak clearly and openly what God has taught you, regardless of the cost to yourself, to your church, to your family. Again, let me say that more positively. Be courageous to speak the truth of the scriptures clearly and openly regardless of the cost. Now, it is one thing for me to to make that statement. But thankfully, God doesn't simply say, Christ doesn't simply say, be courageous. And then somehow leave it to myself to manufacture that courage within me. If that was what was asked for, then quite honestly, knowing myself, I couldn't do it. I know my own weaknesses. I know my proclivities to be a people pleaser. I know my proclivities toward peacefulness. So what God does is he actually provides for us four levels of encouragement or four reasons to speak the truth with courage. Let's walk through each one of them within the text. Number one, have no fear to speak because your mistreatment identifies you with Christ. Have no fear to speak because your mistreatment identifies you with Christ. The very first command we find in verse 26 actually begins with the word so. (coughs) So when we look at the word so there, or in some versions it might say therefore, We have to look back at the previous foundation. In other words, what he's saying in verses 24 and 25 give us the foundation for not having fear. Reading those verses, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Now catch what he says here. Here's his application. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they align those of his household? What is Christ saying? I think what he's saying is simply, simply this. Fearlessness flows from what Jesus has said 
that if they call me of the house of Beelzebub, they will do the same to you. In other words, what Christ is saying is simply this. Your mistreatment for speaking the truth clearly and openly is not some unexpected, accidental, random, meaningless experience. What Christ is saying is this, is that's exactly the way that they treated me. And since they treated me that way, you can expect them to treat you that way. And even more so, when they treat you that way, that is a sign, that is a symbol that you belong to me. You are part of my household. So don't be afraid when they call you names. Just continue to speak openly. Continue to speak plainly. Because that mistreatment actually binds your heart to my heart. Now, from a biblical perspective, what Christ is communicating is really just basic discipleship. The basic discipleship is that the servant will be treated worse than the master. Think about it for a moment within the early church setting. Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him who had endured such hostility by sinners against him. So in other words, consider what Christ endured. For what purpose? The author continues, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, consider what Christ went through and recognize that you're going to go through the same thing. Don't lose heart. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of the body. I think what, what Paul's speaking of there is the church. Okay, So I share on behalf of the church in, in filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. Paul is writing a prison epistle. He's in prison, and he's simply saying that I am sharing in the afflictions of Christ. This is basic discipleship. 1 Peter chapter 1. For you are called for, for this purpose. And what's the purpose in 1 Peter? Righteous suffering. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Peter continues in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing had happened to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Sufferings are not just a consequence of the master's obedience and mission. Can I suggest for us this morning that suffering is part of the central strategy of fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ. It is the grounds through which he accomplished his mission. And what Christ calls us to do is actually to join him on the Calvary Road, to take up our cross, to hate our lives in this world, to fall like a, a seed into the ground and to die for what purpose? That we might live for others. Why? Because we're not above our masters. Not at all. Suffering is a part of the Christian experience. After I uh, graduated from graduate school, I had the privilege of moving to India. And as I was serving in India, I was serving at a small Bible college there. 
about 125 students. And one of the things that we did every Friday is we actually went out and we would go into the villages and we would preach the gospel. And as we were going out into the villages, there was a certain understood reality among the students. And that understood reality is, is that we would not receive a warm reception. So we would go out into the villages, and because I was an American, the biggest guys would actually surround me. And I just got accustomed to one individual in particular. He was actually a student from Burma. His name was Moses. His English name was Moses. Moses was about six foot five, probably weighed about 325 pounds. No one even got close to Moses' size. We would go out into the villages, and we would line up, and we would rotate in preaching the Gospels, and it would rise to the point where the villagers would come out, and in some villages, they would warmly receive us, and in other villages, they would pick up stones, and they would start heaving them at us. And the first time that I was ever stoned, Moses put his arms around me. And he, and he literally picked me up and began to carry me outside the village. And I, 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 was, I was elbowing him. I was kicking him. And I, I, my feet were not on the ground because I was above the ground. And I was saying, Moses, put me down. And he simply said this, Brian, we know this. You're not accustomed to this. You don't, you don't do this. And he picked me up and he carried me outside the village. And then eventually all the other students caught up with me. And, and I was out there and I said, guys, I, don't get me out of this. And Moses instantaneously, without any thought, took his shirt off. And he turned around and he showed me his back. And on his back were the scars of being beaten with sticks. And he said, Brian... These are the marks that I bear that you shouldn't have to. I will carry you out. I wrestled with that in my mind. Because the reality is is that they were the marks that Christ bore, that I should bear also. And yet at the same time, how could I deny the love of a brother who sought to simply protect me in the midst of it? From that point forward, Moses never left me, and Moses always carried me out. And there is a small disappointment that I never had the privilege of bearing the marks of suffering. But there is great gratitude and seeing those who did. What Christ is saying is simply this. Do not fear. When the sticks are, 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 are picked up, when the stones are thrown, when the words are heaved, when the embarrassment comes upon us, that simply identifies us as a disciple of our master. And that is the normal Christian experience. Now, again, thankfully in our country, very few of us would ever bear the marks from a physical perspective. But we need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to build internal courage so that we do not fear the treatment of a neighbor, of a co-worker, 
of a family member who may view us in a way that is diminishing to our own egos. And how soft we can be in that area. Christ simply begins by saying, don't fear. Have courage. Why? Because your mistreatment identifies you with Christ. The second reason is simply this, verse 26. It says, have no fear for them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Number two, have no fear to speak because you are on the victorious side. Have no fear to speak because you are on the victorious side. In essence, what Christ is saying this is he's saying that today we live in the dark, but there will come a day of light. And in that day of light, all truth will be declared and vice will be exposed as evil. So the question is simply this, how does that help us? overcome fear, and how does that help us to be courageous for truth? I think the reason that helps us is simply this, is when we know that we are on the winning side, we have courage at that point. Again, mundane illustration, but it's a simple way of, of describing the truth. What I'm about ready to say very well may limit your capacity to listen to me from this point forward. And I recognize that, but I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. I, I grew up five minutes from Ohio State University, and I am a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, for some of you, that is extremely offensive, and all I can do is ask forgiveness and plead that my loyalty is primarily to my father, and that actually trumps any loyalty or love I have to anyone else. My father said that I would be a Buckeye fan, and so I am a Buckeye fan. All right, this coming week, Ohio State plays Michigan in what's typically called the game. For those that have not kept up with college football, both teams are actually undefeated. And so this coming week will be a very big affair in Columbus, Ohio. If I were at that particular game... I would be encouraged by multiple of my friends to both go to the game, but then to dress appropriately for the game. And what that would mean is simply this, is that I would have a sweat, I would have an outer jacket, because it will be cold, that says Ohio State University on. Then I would have a hoodie on that would say Ohio State University. Then underneath that, I would have a t-shirt on that would say Ohio State University. And then underneath that, okay, my chest would be painted scarlet, and there would be a big gray O in the middle of it. Now, the level of, of dress that I would wear would all depend upon the outcome of the game. In the first quarter, I would be fully clothed. If we were ahead 14 nothing at the end of the first quarter, the outer garment would probably come out, and I'd just go hoodie at that point. If we were ahead 28 nothing at the end of the half, I would probably take the hoodie off and I'd just go T-shirt. If we were ahead at the end of the third quarter, let's say 56 to nothing, then it's time to go all in. Because at that point in time, you know you are on the winning team. And so being bold at that point comes easy. So the T-shirt would come off, 
and my friends, we would all line up, and I would be the O, and Tim would be the H, and John would be the I, and uh, John Jr. would be the O, and we would all be standing up, O-H-I-O, begging for the camera to expose us so that we can communicate what used to be in secret but now is fully known, Ohio State is the winning team. But you notice I'm hedging my bets. If Ohio State is not up by halftime, then the coat's staying on. And if at the end of the game uh, we have lost, then everything, and I might actually walk out like this. And you might see some scarlet and gray, but not much more. Mundane illustration. My apologies for it. But I think you understand the truth. The truthfulness is simply this. When you know you are on the winning team, then you're willing to go all in for it. It doesn't matter. If I knew that Ohio State was going to win, then I will proclaim it loudly from the housetops. That's active faith. What Christ is saying is simply this. He's communicating to his disciples, have active faith. Recognize that you are on the winning team. That you are going to be speaking truth. That might be questioned. That might be denied by others. That might be that which is made fun of. That might be that which is demeaned. But at the end of the day, when you proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, you are on the victorious side. Let's tie it together. I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So what Christ is doing is he's instilling courage within his disciples. Not by communicating that the path will be easy, but by communicating that the end is sure. And when the end is sure, that provides confidence at that point. But it takes active faith. You have to go to the field prepared for proclamation. First thing that Christ does is he simply says, have no fear because your mistreatment identifies you with Christ. Makes you part of the family. It gives you the appropriate, if I can phrase it this way, birthmarks of the Savior. Mistreatment. Second, have no fear because you're on the victorious side. It doesn't stop there. He continues. Number three, he says this. Have no fear. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this is one that will provide great courage and great encouragement to you. Have no fear to speak because they can only kill you. That's it. That's the best that they can do. They can only kill you. From a biblical perspective, is that a point of encouragement? Think for a moment. Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. Luke 21, 
Some of you, they will put to death, but not of a hair of your head will perish. John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Romans 8, that wonderful doxology at the end of Romans 8. Neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have no fear to speak because the best they can do is they can kill you. And that's just a mortal death. You move right into eternity after that. Think about the, the, the cadre of individuals that have set an example for us in this regard. Esther, in Esther chapter 4, as she considers going to the king, she simply says this, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And she says, And if I perish, I perish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're answering Nebuchadnezzar, O king, we have no need to answer you and answer you in this matter. If so be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand. But, they continue, but O king, if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. King, the best you can do is you can just kill us. Agabus the prophet goes to Paul in Acts 21 and says, you will be bound if you go to Jerusalem. And the brothers in Christ were pleading with Paul, don't go. Paul's response is simply this, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die at Jerusalem for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I simply say that what Christ is doing is he is freeing the disciples from the ultimate consequence. And in freeing the disciples from the ultimate consequence, he is loosing them to speak openly and freely the joy of the gospel. When the threat of death becomes a door to paradise, the final barrier to temporal risk is broken. There is no risk when the other side is paradise at that point. When a Christian says in his heart, not just with his lips, but in his heart, to live is Christ and to die is gain, he is free to love no matter what at that point. So what Christ is saying to every timid saint, wavering on the edge of some dangerous gospel venture, he's simply saying, fear not. Fear not. All they can do is to kill you. That's it. Christ gives a fourth reason in the passage for not fearing. It's actually found in verse 29. He says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. The fourth reason that that Christ gives is simply this. Have no fear to speak because nothing can happen to you apart from God's caring will. Nothing can happen to you. I I love what Christ does here. His argument is simply this. His argument is, you're not greater than the master. 
Verse 24. But you are greater than a sparrow. You're not greater than the master, so expect mistreatment. But you are greater than a sparrow. And the father himself cares about the sparrows that fall to the ground. And because of that, he will care about you. He will never allow you to endure something that he is not walking with you in the way. Too many Christians are not living God's will for their life because they've chosen to live in their fears instead. There's so many wonderful missionary testimonies of this. My, my favorite missionary, my hero, is a man by the name of Adniram Judson. Adniram Judson was the first American missionary actually to go overseas in 1812. He, the, he left the comforts of Boston to go to the land of Burma. And as he did so, he recognized that he wanted and needed a wife. So he actually went to a, a number of gatherings and was looking for someone who had the energy to, to join him. And he saw a young lady by the name of Nancy Hasseltine. And what impressed him about Nancy was Nancy always had a joy about her, and she was always the best dancer. And he thought, someone with that level of energy and someone with that level of joy, that would make a great spouse when you're going overseas. But he didn't know her well, nor did he know her family well. But Adoniram Justin was a man of purpose and intention, and he recognized, I want Nancy, and so I will sign, I, I will write a letter to her father, and I will ask for her hand in marriage. I'm going to read that letter to you. Right, the letter is lengthy, but I want you to catch the tone of it. Judson's letter to Mr. Mr. Hasseltine, who he'd only met twice. He writes this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more, no more in this world. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to, to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior for the heathen saved through her means in the eternal woes and despair? Can you consent to give her to me in marriage that she might give her life to the master. Dads, how would you respond? This is his response. This is actually from Nancy's perspective. Nancy wrote this. After my father gave his consent, I searched my own heart. And I feel willing and expect, if nothing, 
And providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come about to the to the determination to give up all of my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affections to relatives and to friends, and to go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me and fit to take me. And Judson died at the age of 36. Giving her life on the field in the country of Burma. But she understood that nothing can happen to her apart from God's love and care. Absolutely nothing. Christ is addressing an issue. It's an issue which the disciples faced in their day. They were about ready to go out on a mission. And as they were going out on a mission, there was a number of mandates to preach the kingdom of God. Christ looks in their eyes and he sees this this sense of fear that's building within them. And as he gets to the end of his, of his commissioning service, he simply says, disciples, have no fear. Have no fear. Have no fear. Be courageous. Because if you suffer, that only identifies you with me. Be courageous. Because ultimately, you're on the victorious side. Be courageous. Because the best they can do is simply kill you. Be courageous because absolutely nothing can happen to you outside of my Father's gracious care. Disciples, go and speak openly what I have declared to you privately. Now let me just simply say this. These statements are utterly dependent upon a biblical Christianity that weighs everything in light of eternity. If there is no heaven to be gained, no hell to shun, if the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God are not the most important things in this world and the world to come, then quite honestly, these arguments make no sense. Nominal belief in spiritual spiritual realities will not serve as iron in the backbone of a disciple. Embracing the truths of the gospel daily in word and in action are really the only foundation for a Christian's life. In other words, if you don't truly appropriate the gospel and see its value on a daily basis, then your heart will be given to fear. Friends, silent denial is sin. It's the denial of the power of the presence. It's a denial of the person of Jesus Christ. We must speak openly what God has communicated to us privately. Now, with that as a platform, and with that as a foundation, just one simple question. So what? What does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for us at Palmetto Baptist Church? I am going to be very simple here. Our goal in 2023 is simply this. Each one, win one. Each one, win one. Is it unreasonable to suggest that each one of us through the course of next year will have multiple opportunities 
to present the gospel to the lost. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think as we look at our families in the workplace, in our communities, wherever God has sovereignly and strategically placed us, God has provided for us multiple opportunities to engage individuals with the gospel. I think that is reasonable. Number two, is it unreasonable to suggest that God could use those multiple gospel opportunities to bring about the conversion of lost men and women? I don't think that's, reasonable. Uh, that's unreasonable. I think that as we share the gospel to multiple individuals, as God would provide us gracious opportunities, that God will then take his word and implant it in the soul and will bring about the conversion of the lost. That's what God is doing in the world today. He is building his church through the proclamation of the gospel. And his invitation to us is simply to be a partner in the building of that church by liberating our tongues so that we can boldly proclaim the gospel. And in doing so, each one win one. Would you give consideration to daily praying, Lord, as I consider the next 12 months, Allow me to be a bold, courageous gospel proclaimer. And allow me the joy of being the agent of the salvation of one. Lord, just one. If that takes place, think about what God will be doing in this midst. We are committed from a leadership team to modeling that before you. As we seek to share the gospel, we are committed as a leadership team to, pro, to, to providing multiple opportunities within the, the, the lifeblood, within the context of Palmetto Baptist Church, giving you opportunities to engage with unbelievers. We will seek to open doors for you. And all we would ask is this, that you would simply walk through them. And as you walk through them, allow God to open those lips for the proclamation of the praise of his glorious gospel that he might build his church. Each one, win one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. And we will simply ask that you would use your word to instill within us courage so that we might partner with you in the building of your church. We do not want to be bystanders. We want to be participants and we want to see this local body reflect your glory in this community through the message of the gospel. Father, we love you, and we would simply ask that you would give us that privilege of being a gospel proclaimer. In your name, amen.